Section 10 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Darbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 Lincoln and the Soldiers, Part 1. Another serious problem which the failure of the Peninsular Campaign thrust on the President was where to get troops for a renewal of the war. When one recalls the eagerness with which men rushed into arms at the opening of the Civil War, it seems as if President Lincoln should never have had anxiety about filling the ranks of the army. For the first year, indeed, it gave him little concern. So promptly were the calls of 1861 answered that in the spring of 1862 an army of 637,126 men was in service. It was believed that with this force the war could be ended, and in April recruiting was stopped. It was a grave mistake. Before the end of May, the losses and discouragements of the Peninsular Campaign made it necessary to reinforce the Army of the Potomac. More men were needed, in fact, all along the line. Lincoln saw that, rather than an army of 600,000 men, he should have one of a million, and July 2nd he issued a call for 300,000 men for three years, and August 4th an order was issued for a draft of 300,000 more for nine months. By the end of 1862, nearly one and a half million men had been enrolled in the army. Nevertheless, the strength of the army at that time was counted at but 918,000. What had become of the half million and more? Nearly 100,000 of them had been killed or totally disabled on the battlefield. 200,000 more, perhaps, had fallen out in the seasoning process. Passed by careless medical examiners, the first five-mile march, the first week of camp life, had brought out some physical weakness which made soldiering out of the question. The rest of the loss was in three months, six months, or nine months men. They had enlisted for these short periods, and their terms up they had left the army. Moreover, the President had learned by this time that even when the Secretary of War told him that the strength of the army was 918,000, it did not by any means follow that there were that number of men present for duty. Experience had taught him that about one-fourth of the reputed strength must be allowed for shrinkage, that is, for men in hospitals, men on furloughs, men who had deserted, he had learned that this enormous wastage went on steadily. It followed that if the army was to be kept up to the million men mark, recruiting must be as steady as, and in proportion to, the shrinkage. Recruiting, so easy at the beginning of the war, had become by 1862 quite a different matter. Patriotism, love of adventure, excitement could no longer be counted on to fill the ranks. It was plain to the President that hereafter, if he was to have the men he needed, military service must be compulsory. Nothing could have been devised which would have created a louder uproar in the North than the suggestion of a draft. All through the winter of 1862-63, Congress wrangled over the bill ordering it, much of the press in the meantime denouncing it as despotic and contrary to American institutions. The bill passed, however, and the President signed it in March, 1863. At once there was put into operation a huge new military machine, the Bureau of the Provost Marshal General, 
which had for its business the enrollment of all the men in the united states whom the new law considered capable of bearing arms and the drafting enough of them to fill up the quota assigned to each state this bureau was also to look after deserters a whole series of new problems was thrust on the president when the bureau of the provost-marshal-general came into being the quotas assigned the states led to endless disputes between the governors and the war department the drafts caused riots an inferior kind of soldier was obtained by drafting and deserters increased lincoln shirked none of these new cares he was determined that the efficiency of the war engine should be kept up and nobody in the government studied more closely how this was to be done or insisted more vigorously on the full execution of the law in assigning the quotas to the different states certain credits were made of men who had entered previously many disputes arose over the credits and assignments some of them most perplexing ultimately most of these reached the president the draft bore heavily on districts where the percentage of death among the first volunteers had been large and often urgent pleas were made to the president to release a city or county from the quota assigned the late joseph medill the editor of the chicago tribune once told me how he and certain leading citizens of chicago went to lincoln to ask that the quota of cook county be reduced in eighteen sixty four when the call for extra troops came chicago revolted said mr medill she had already sent twenty two thousand men up to that time and was drained when the new call came there were no young men to go no aliens except what were bought the citizens held a mass meeting and appointed three persons of whom i was one to go to washington and ask stanton to give cook county a new enrollment i begged off but the committee insisted so i went on reaching washington we went to stanton with our statement he refused entirely to give us the desired aid then we went to lincoln i cannot do it he said but i will go with you to stanton and hear the arguments of both sides so we all went over to the war department together stanton and general fry were there and they of course contended that the quota should not be changed the argument went on for some time and finally was referred to lincoln who had been sitting silently listening i shall never forget how he suddenly lifted his head and turned on us a black and frowning face gentlemen he said in a voice full of bitterness after boston chicago has been the chief instrument in bringing this war on the country the northwest has opposed the south as new england has opposed the south it is you who are largely responsible for making blood flow as it has you called for war until we had it you called for emancipation and i have given it to you whatever you have asked you have had now you come here begging to be let off from the call for men which i have made to carry out the war you have demanded you ought to be ashamed of yourselves i have a right to expect better things of you go home and raise your six thousand extra men and you medill you are acting like a coward you and your tribune have had more influence than any paper in the northwest in making this war you can influence great masses and yet you cry to be spared at a moment when your cause is suffering 
go home and send us those men i couldn't say anything it was the first time i ever was whipped and i didn't have an answer we all got up and went out and when the door closed one of my colleagues said well gentlemen the old man is right we ought to be ashamed of ourselves let us never say anything about this but go home and raise the men and we did six thousand men making twenty-eight thousand in the war from a city of a hundred and fifty-six thousand but there might have been crape on every door almost in chicago for every family had lost a son or a husband i lost two brothers it was hard for the mothers severe as lincoln could be with any disposition to shirk what he considered a just and necessary demand strenuously as he insisted that the ranks must be kept full he never came to regard the army as a mere machine never forgot the individual men who made it up indeed he was the one man in the government who from first to last was big enough to use both his head and his heart from the outset he was the personal friend of every soldier he sent to the front and somehow every man seemed to know it no doubt it was on lincoln's visits to the camps around washington in the early days of the war that the body of soldiers got this idea they never forgot his friendly hand-clasp his hearty god bless you his remonstrance against the youth of some fifteen-year-old boy masquerading as twenty his jocular remarks about the height of some soldier towering above his own six feet four when later he visited the army of the potomac on the rappahannock and at antietam these impressions of his interest in the personal welfare of the soldiers were renewed he walked down the long lines of tents or huts noting the attempts at decoration the housekeeping conveniences replying by smiles and nods and sometimes with words to the greetings rough and hearty which he received he inquired into every phase of camp life and the men knew it and said to one another he cares for us he makes us fight but he cares reports of scores of cases where he interfered personally to secure some favor or right for a soldier found their way to the army and gave solid foundation to this impression that he was the soldier's friend from the time of the arrival of the first troops in washington in april eighteen sixty one the town was full of men all of them wanting to see the president at first they were gay and curious merely their requests trivial but later when the army had settled down to steady fighting and bull run and the peninsula and antietam and fredericksburg and chancellorsville had cut and scarred and aged it the soldiers who haunted washington were changed they stumped about on crutches they sat pale and thin in the parks empty sleeves pinned to their breasts they came to the white house begging for furloughs to see dying parents for release to support a suffering family no man will ever know how many of these soldiers abraham lincoln helped little cards are constantly turning up in different parts of the country treasured by private soldiers on which he had written some brief note to a proper authority intended to help a man out of a difficulty here is one secretary of war please see this pittsburgh boy he is very young and i shall be satisfied with whatever you do with him a lincoln august twenty first eighteen sixty three the pittsburgh boy had enlisted at seventeen 
he had been ill with a long fever. He wanted a furlough, and with a curious trust that anything could be done if he could only get to the president, he had slipped into the White House, and by chance met Lincoln, who listened to his story and gave him this note. Many applications reached Lincoln as he passed to and from the White House and the War Department. One day, as he crossed the park, he was stopped by a Negro who told him a pitiful story. The president wrote him out a check for five dollars. Pay to colored man with one leg, it read. This check is now in the collection of H. H. Officey of Denver, Colorado. A pleasing scene between Lincoln and a soldier once fell under the eye of Mr. A. W. Swan of Albuquerque, New Mexico, on the same path between the White House and the War Department. In company with a gentleman, I was on the way to the War Department one day. Our way led through a small park between the White House and the War Department building. As we entered this park, we noticed Mr. Lincoln just ahead of us, and meeting him, a private soldier who was evidently in a violent passion, as he was swearing in a high key, cursing the government from the president down. Mr. Lincoln paused as he met the irate soldier, and asked him what was the matter. Matter enough, was the reply. I want my money. I have been discharged here, and can't get my pay. Mr. Lincoln asked if he had his papers, saying that he used to practice law in a small way and possibly could help him. My friend and I stepped behind some convenient shrubbery where we could watch the result. Mr. Lincoln took the papers from the hands of the crippled soldier and sat down with him at the foot of a convenient tree where he examined them carefully and writing a line on the back told the soldier to take them to Mr. Potts chief clerk of the War Department, who would doubtless attend to the matter at once. After Mr. Lincoln had left the soldier, we stepped out and asked him if he knew whom he had been talking with. Some ugly old fellow who pretends to be a lawyer, was the reply. My companion asked to see the papers, and on their being handed to him, pointed to the endorsement they had received. This endorsement read, Mr. Potts, attend to this man's case at once and see that he gets his pay. A.L. The initials were too familiar with men in position to know them to be ignored. We went with the soldier, who had just returned from Libby Prison and had been given a hospital certificate for discharge, to see Mr. Potts, and before the paymaster's office was closed for the day, he had received his discharge and check for the money due him he in the meantime not knowing whether to be the more pleased or sorry to think he had cursed abe lincoln to his face it was not alone the soldier to whom the president listened it was also to his wife his mother his daughter i remember one morning says mr a b chandler his coming into my office with a distressed expression on his face and saying to major eckert eckert who is that woman crying out in the hall what is the matter with her? Eckert said he did not know, but would go and find out. He came back soon and said that it was a woman who had come a long distance, expecting to go down to the army to see her husband, that she had some very important matters to consult him about. An order had gone out a short time before to allow no women in the army, except in special cases. She was bitterly disappointed and was crying over it, Mr. Lincoln sat moodily for a moment after hearing this story, and suddenly looking up, said, Let's send her down. You write the order, Major. Major Eckert hesitated a moment and said, Would it not be better for Colonel Hardy to write the order? 
Yes, said Mr. Lincoln, that is better. Let Hardy write it. The Major went out and soon returned, saying, Mr. President, would it not be better in this case to let the woman's husband come to Washington? Mr. Lincoln's face lighted up with pleasure. Yes, yes, he said, let's bring him up. The order was written, and the woman was told that her husband would come to Washington. This done, her sorrows seemed lifted from Mr. Lincoln's heart, and he sat down to his yellow tissue telegrams with a serene face. The futility of trying to help all the soldiers who found their way to him must have come often to Lincoln's mind. Now, my man, go away, go away, General Fry overheard him say one day to a soldier who was pleading for the President's interference in his behalf. I cannot meddle in your case. I could as easily bail out the Potomac with a teaspoon as attend to all the details of the army. The President's relations with individual soldiers were, of course, transient. Washington was, for the great body of soldiers, whatever their condition, only a halfway house between North and South. The only body of soldiers with which the President had long association was Company K of the 150th Pennsylvania Volunteers. This company, raised in Crawford County in northwestern Pennsylvania, reached Washington in the first days of September, 1862. September 6th, Captain D.V. Derrickson of Meadville, Pennsylvania, who was in command of the company, received orders to march his men to the soldiers' home, to act there as a guard to the president, who was occupying a cottage in the grounds. The next morning after our arrival, says Mr. Derrickson, the President sent a message to my quarters, stating that he would like to see the captain of the guard at his residence. I immediately reported. After an informal introduction and handshaking, he asked me if I would have any objection to riding with him to the city. I replied that it would give me great pleasure to do so, when he invited me to take a seat in the carriage. On our way to the city, he made numerous inquiries as to my name, where I came from, what regiment I belonged to, etc. When we entered the city, Mr. Lincoln said he would call at General Halleck's headquarters and get what news had been received from the army during the night. I informed him that General Cullum, chief aide to General Halleck, was raised in Meadville and that I knew him when I was a boy. He replied, Then we must see both the gentlemen. When the carriage stopped, he requested me to remain seated, and said he would bring the gentleman down to see me, the office being on the second floor. In a short time, the president came down, followed by the other gentleman. When he introduced them to me, General Cullum recognized and seemed pleased to see me. In General Halleck, I thought I discovered a kind of quizzical look, as much as to say, isn't this rather a big joke to ask the commander-in-chief of the army down to the street to be introduced to a country captain? Supposing that the invitation to ride to the city with the president was as much to give him an opportunity to look over and interview the new captain as for any other purpose, I did not report the next morning. During the day, I was informed that it was the desire of the President that I should breakfast with him and accompany him to the White House every morning and return with him in the evening. This duty I entered upon with much pleasure and was on hand in good time next morning, and I continued to perform this duty until we moved to the White House in November. It was Mr. Lincoln's custom, on account of the pressure of business, to breakfast before the other members of the family were up 
and i usually entered his room at half-past six or seven o'clock in the morning where i often found him reading the bible or some work on the art of war on my entering he would read aloud and offer comments of his own as he read i usually went down to the city at four o'clock and returned with the president at five he often carried a small portfolio containing papers relating to the business of the day and spent many hours on them in the evening i found mr lincoln to be one of the most kind-hearted and pleasant gentlemen that i had ever met he never spoke unkindly of any one and always spoke of the rebels as those southern gentlemen this kindly relation begun with the captain the president extended to every man of his company it was their pride that he knew every one of them by name he always called me joe i heard a veteran of the guards say a quaver in his voice he never passed the men on duty without acknowledging their salute and often visited their camp once in passing when the men were at mess he called out that coffee smells good boys give me a cup and on another occasion he asked for a plate of beans and sat down on a camp-stool and ate them mrs lincoln frequently visited the company with the president and many and many a gift to the white house larder from enthusiastic supporters of the administration was sent to the boys now a barrel of apple butter now a quarter of beef on holidays mrs lincoln made it a rule to provide company k with a turkey dinner late in the fall of eighteen sixty two an attempt was made to depose the company every member of the guard now living can quote verbatim the note which the president wrote settling the matter executive mansion washington november first eighteen sixty two to whom it may concern captain derrickson with his company has been for some time keeping guard at my residence now at the soldiers retreat he and his company are very agreeable to me and while it is deemed proper for any guard to remain none would be more satisfactory than captain derrickson and his company a lincoln the welfare of the men their troubles escapades amusements were treated by the president as a kind of family matter he never forgot to ask after the sick often secured a pass or a furlough for someone and took genuine delight in the camp fun while we were in camp at the soldiers home in the fall of eighteen sixty two says mr c m derrickson of mercer pennsylvania the boys indulged in various kinds of amusement i think it was the kepler boys who introduced the trained elephant two men of about the same size both in a stooped position were placed one ahead of the other an army blanket was then thrown over them so that it came about to their knees and a trunk improvised by wrapping a piece of a blanket around a small elastic piece of wood was placed in the hands of the front man here you have your elephant ours was taught to get down on his knees stand on one leg and do various other tricks while the elephant was going through his exercises one evening the president strolled into camp he was very much amused at the wonderful feats the elephant could perform and a few evenings after he called again and brought a friend with him and asked the captain if he would not have the elephant brought out again as he would like to have his friend see him perform of course it was done to the great amusement of both the president and his friend no doubt much of the president's interest in company k was due to his son tad the boy was a great favorite with the men and probably carried to his father many a tale of the camp 
he considered himself in fact no unimportant part of the organization for he wore a uniform carried a lieutenant's commission often drilled with the men or rode on his pony at their head in reviews and much of the time messed with them one of the odd duties which devolved upon company k was looking after tad's goats these animals have been given a place in history by lincoln himself in telegrams to mrs lincoln duly filed in the records of the war department tell tad the goats and father are very well especially the goats he wired one day and again all well including tad's pony and the goats they were privileged beings on the white house lawn and were looked after by the company because of tad's affection for them they met an untimely end being burned to death in a fire which destroyed the white house stables february tenth eighteen sixty four the two most harrowing consequences of war the havoc of the battlefield and the disease of camp life from the beginning to the end of the civil war centered in washington it was the point to which every man disabled in the army of the potomac must come sooner or later for care or to be transferred to the north after battles the city seemed turned into one great hospital for days then a long straggling train of mutilated men poured in they came on flat cars or open transports piled so close together that no attendant could pass between them protected occasionally from the cold by a blanket which had escaped with its owner or from the sun by green boughs placed in their hands or laid over their faces when washington was reached all that could be done was to lay them in long rows on the wharfs or platforms until ambulances could carry them to the hospitals it is when one considers the numbers of wounded in the great virginia battles that he realizes the length and awfulness of the streams which flowed into washington at fredericksburg they numbered ninety six hundred at chancellorsville nine thousand seven hundred sixty two in the wilderness twelve thousand thirty seven at spotsylvania thirteen thousand four hundred sixteen end of section ten